morning, everybody. Welcome to Element. I said, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Element. Uh, my name is Eric Jafruti, and I'm one of the elders here. If I haven't met you, I'd like to introduce myself. I've got a lot of new faces here. Uh, we do have Bibles in the back. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one. If you uh, just forgot yours, you can borrow that one. We have notes, sermon notes, on all of the communion tables on the front and in the back. And if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Version, and you can get the notes by GPS as well. And uh, I think that covers all my announcements. How's everybody doing? Okay. Well, if you're new today, we're going through the book of Genesis, and it's the first book of the Bible. If you're not new, you know that this is a pretty big week. We get to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate that. Um, And in our attempt to uh, offend as many people as possible, last week we got rid of all the women. This week we're going to get rid of all the perverts. So next week Aaron can take a day off because nobody will be here because that's all of us, right? So uh, just kidding, obviously. Uh, Let me say this as we get into Genesis 19, that today we're dealing with one of the hardest, one of the most difficult, controversial, troublesome parts of the whole Bible, okay? So it's uh, one of the most, it is the most frequently quoted section of Genesis throughout the rest of scripture, and it's also the most frequently quoted section of scripture in our society regarding homosexuality uh, from people on both sides of the issue. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to pray, we're going to, I'm going to set it up, and then we're going to finish, and then I'm going to run for my life, okay? So uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 28 through 33. And it says, this is Jesus speaking, it says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that reveals who you are. Father, today I pray that you would speak to us as we see your character and your passion against sin because of the destruction that it does to your people and and your passion and your mercy for your people, Lord, in bringing us salvation through Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, that we would get the essence of what you have to say to us today. So we pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Now, the Dead Sea is actually, the Dead Sea Valley is the lowest spot on the Earth's surface. It's approximately 1,286 feet below sea level. And the Jordan River flows into it, but nothing flows out of it. So they say that it's so salty that you actually won't sink. Now, nothing lives in it. And it's on the southern end there of the Dead Sea. There's this mountain of rocks all over 700 feet high, and it's called Mount Sodom. And archaeology shows that there was one time a vast and extensive irrigation system throughout this region. And that confirms what we see in Genesis 13.10 about how lush and how beautiful it was. It says, actually, in 13.10 that it was like the garden of the Lord. Now... It's like the valley of the shadow of death. How did it get transformed to death? Genesis 19 actually tells us. We're going to see that. It's a timeless tale of the character and the passion of God for righteousness. But it also reminds us that in Christ we see God's passion for our great salvation as well. And it gives us hope because we'll see that we are no better 
and the Sodomites in the story. We'll see that, but for the grace of God, there go I. Now, sometimes the name of a person or a place becomes associated with certain connotations, and sometimes they're just not fair. And you ask a person on the street, for example, what a Calvinist is like, or you go to a different country and you ask them, what are Americans like? And you may be surprised by what you hear. It may not match what you know to be true about them. Sodom has gained a reputation. And the very name, Sodom, denotes gross immoral actions. And the word sodomy originates with this story. Is Sodom's reputation fair? Well, Genesis 19 tells us, yes, it is. It's a city that's associated with great wickedness. But as we looked at briefly last week, sexual immorality was not the only sin of Sodom. And the thing this morning that you may struggle most mightily to embrace is that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is not disconnected but is, in fact, very closely tied to Jesus. And I know that some of you have this picture in your mind of Jesus with uh, feathered hair and wearing a halo and, and a diaper. That is not Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He did come down from heaven humbly uh, for 33 years as a man to identify with us. And during that time, yeah, he was a humble, marginalized Galilean peasant. But that's not the way he was in eternity past. That's not the way he is today, and that's not the way he is in eternity future. So when you see Jesus, you're seeing him in all of his glory today. And two things that I want to say as we deal with the destruction of Sodom uh, and Gomorrah and why it's connected to Jesus. And one of them is that Jesus taught that it was indeed historically accurate and true. Now, I won't read all of the references, but Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15, Matthew 11, uh, 23 and 24, Luke 10, 12, Jesus talks about the destruction of the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the same place that we're going to be looking at and studying today. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, we're Christians, but we're not the born-again fire and brimstone type. Well, guess what? We are. Uh, I just let the cat out of the bag. I know. But yes, we are. We believe that scripture is God-breathed, that it's profitable. And so we don't laugh or ignore certain parts of the Bible because they're harder for us to embrace. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I love Jesus, but I I just don't like the Old Testament. Well, Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher of the Old Testament. So if you're going to to believe in Jesus, you've got to believe in his teachings. And his teachings include Sodom and Gomorrah. And the second thing, not only does flaming road tar come flying out of heaven, fire and brimstone on sinners this week, but it was sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at Genesis 18. Uh, Jesus and two angels show up to talk with Abraham, and the two angels go down into the the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah to inspect sin because they hear of the outcry that was so great that it reached heaven. And Jesus stays back to explain what's going to happen to Abraham. And so this week, we find that it's the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who talked to Abraham, who judges Sodom and Gomorrah and who destroys them. So what we're dealing with today is, in fact, inextricably connected to Jesus. So that brings us to verse 1, chapter 19. I'll read through verse 3. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he, and he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then, then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So the angels arrive at Sodom at night, and it's dark, and when you enter a bad part of town at night, you should be afraid, because that's when all the bad stuff happens. 
And the outcry about all of this bad stuff happening in Sodom and Gomorrah has been heard by God. And now the angels are there to confirm it. Now, they could have just appeared. They could have just popped up right in the middle of the city. But they come through the gate as normal men would. And they find Lot there. He's sitting at the gate, and he's a greeter, and he's a guard of the city. Now, how did Lot get here? How did he get here? You remember back in Genesis 13 when Abraham and Lot decided to split ways because there wasn't enough room for all of their livestock. And so there was this conflict between their herdsmen. And Abraham says to Lot, okay, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Pick where you want to go. And Lot, he looks down the Jordan Valley and he sees that, as it describes in Genesis, it was lush like the garden of the Lord. It was beautiful. It was glorious. It was, it was like paradise. And so he selfishly chooses this area. And in verse 12 of chapter 13, it says that he moves near to or he pitches his tent toward Sodom. It's like there's this gravitational pull on Lot towards Sodom. It's drawing him in. And from just outside of Sodom, eventually he moves in to this evil city. It's like he decides to camp out in Reno, and then all of a sudden he finds himself in Las Vegas. You know? And so the last we actually hear about Lot is in Genesis 14, when he, along with the kings uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah, were captured in battle, and Abraham risks his life to save him. And Abraham ends up saving all of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as Lot. And this is when we get the first inkling of Sodom's sin. If you go back to Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, it says this. It says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And verse 3 is crucial. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what we saw there is unlike Melchizedek, the king of Sodom doesn't give Abraham the honor that's due his name as God's channel of blessing to the world. And so this is the first indication of Sodom's sin. Now, you would think, knowing now the wickedness of Sodom, you would think that Lot would take this opportunity to, to get the heck out of there, to, to find a better place to live and raise a family. But no, now we see him here actually sitting at the gate of Sodom as a representative, an important, influential city official. He's a full-blown Sodomite at this point. But Lot did retain some of the morality that he learned from Abraham. And he, he rises up and he greets the angels whom he thought were men with hospitality and with respect. And hospitality was a supreme obligation in this society. He goes out to them. He bows on his face before them. It's the same thing we saw Abraham do last week when the three men, who was really Jesus, and two angels show up at his tent. And we know that angels are messengers, they're spokesmen for God, they're servants of God to carry out His will. And this includes serving you and me, we're told in Hebrews 1.14. And sometimes they appear as people. Now, Lot knows that because of the evil of his city and the impending danger to these men, that he urgently wants to get them to the safety of his house in order to protect them. And so he's hoping that he can get them into his house quickly, get them up early in the morning, get them out of there before anybody in the city knows anything about them. Now, why would Lot choose to live in such a wicked place like this? Again, it was lush, it was paradise because of the wealth and the comfort and the pleasure that this prosperous economic thoroughfare provided. You know, maybe he was uh, hoping that he could make a difference, that he could have a righteous impact on this city. But as we'll see, just the opposite takes place. Rather than influencing the city for good, the city influences Lot for evil. And it reminds us of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, that says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
Or maybe he just hoped that he could have his cake and eat it too. And we're reminded again what John said in 1 John 2.15 that do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so like so many of us who struggle with unholy affections for this world, Lot has grown to love life in Sodom. But the angels say to him, no, no, Lot, we want to spend the night in the town square. And Lot knows what this means. He knows what's in store for them if they do that. So he forcefully twists their arm to go to his house. And so the angels now, they're there to verify the outcry of evil. And so if they wanted to see the worst of the city, they'd want to be out in the open because that's where they would experience it. And they're not afraid, of course. I mean, they have the power, they have the authority to smoke this city. But because Lot is insistent, they agree and they go to Lot's house. And so what we see here is like Abraham, Lot then prepares a feast for them. Now, it's not a great feast, not like Abraham's, you know, with fresh meat and all of that stuff, the whole deal. We don't see him go get his wife like Abraham did, and that probably accounts for the junky meal, you know. They get the Hebrew equivalent of Pop-Tarts, basically. They get unleavened bread, which is the same thing that the Israelites were going to eat as they go through the wilderness in the next book of the Bible. But he brings them in, he feeds them, he shows them hospitality. Everything's looking good, nice. Dinner's over, now it's bedtime. And we go to verse 4. It says, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, and he shut the door behind them. And they said, and, he, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow, has come, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become a, the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They, they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Wow, what a story, huh? It's clear that these men, now, these men live up to their evil reputation, which we saw in Genesis 13, 13 and 18, 20. They surround Lot's house. They bang on the door. They demand that the visitors be brought out to them so that they may know them as literally translated in the ESV. The NIV captures the right idea when it says, so that we can have sex with them. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 4.1 when Adam knew Eve sexually and she conceived a son. Lot goes out to talk to the men and he shuts the door behind him and it's clear that they're about to do something terrible and Lot begs them not to. Now, some believe here that the sin being condemned was a lack of hospitality. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. I think rape is a bit inhospitable, don't you? I mean, but some think that it was actually Lot's failure here to introduce the messengers to the townspeople. And so what the people are doing is they're coming to actually become officially uh, introduced to these men. Now, why then is Lot the only one to be saved in this story? Why wouldn't Lot just make the proper introductions at this time? You see, the context clearly indicates otherwise, as we see from Lot's response here. Lot begs them not to act so wickedly, and he even offers his own virgin daughters who have not known any man. This can only be sexual. 
Now, because of Lot's choice to live in Sodom, he now finds himself between a rock and a hard place where he has to choose the lesser of two evils, either be inhospitable to these guests and not protect them or offer his own daughters to the mob as a sacrifice. Now, obviously, women were esteemed much lower than men in this culture. They were pretty much considered the property of their fathers or or their husbands. For example, Abraham, he didn't ask Sarah for permission uh, when he lied about their marriage and Pharaoh took Sarah as his wife. Lot didn't ask his daughters if they thought this was a good idea. He just offered them. And we're going to see that that comes back to haunt him next week. But the men say, who are you, Lot, to judge us? And here we see their pride and their arrogance. They think they're above any judgment regarding justice, regarding right and wrong. They're a law to themselves, and they're completely driven by their own will and their lust without regard for other people. They say, you're an alien. You're a stranger that's here temporarily. What, what right do you have, Lot, to judge us? We're going to treat you worse than we would have treated them. And they push Lot against the door, and they attempt to break it down. But ironically... You know, the men that Lot is trying to protect actually end up protecting him. And I wonder if he's starting to figure out who these men actually were at this time. And so they pull Lot inside. They shut the door behind him. They strike all of the men outside with this blinding light so that they can't find the door. They were spiritually blind. They they couldn't see the reality of their evil. And now being made physically blind, it doesn't deter them. It doesn't deter their lust and their, their violence. It's unbelievable, right? It's like hard to believe. But you know what? We see this happening all the time today. When somebody becomes addicted to certain types of behaviors and they seek to gratify those desires, even after experiencing the damage to themselves and to others. Other people, they believe that the sin here that's being condemned is not that just the men wanted to have sex with these strangers or these other men, but they wanted to gang rape them. And so they're saying that what's being condemned here is violent gang rape and that's what's being condemned and it's been said that the sodomites purposely mistreated strangers in this way to discourage visitors from actually staying in their city so they didn't want to share their wealth and their prosperity and so in this public humiliation they were not only violating the laws of hospitality but they showed complete contempt and disregard for others Now, no doubt, this would have been the perspective of Lot and and the angels here. But in the Old Testament, the word no never really has an indication of abuse or violation. And the Old Testament does have unmistakable language for uh, the idea of rape and abuse. In Genesis 34.2, we see that in uh, 2 Samuel 13.14 and others. And so the nature of their sin is being clearly revealed here. There's nothing secret about it. They're here for a sexual orgy with these messengers of God who they think are men. And it's not just some of the men. It's not just some of the people. It says it's all of the men, young and old. Everybody is there. This goes back to Abraham bargaining with God for even ten righteous, and none can be found. That brings us to verse 12. It says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. 
So, the evidence of the outcry against Sodom, it's been verified. The angels reveal their true identity to Lot, and they're urgent and they're ready to destroy the cities. And they tell Lot to warn his family, including his future sons-in-law, about this pending destruction. Does Lot believe them? Yes, he does. And he goes, he tracks his sons-in-law down, he finds them, and he tells them what's going to happen, but they don't take him seriously. It's like they think he's joking. And this is the same verb that's used uh, to speak about Sarah laughing at the Lord's promised blessing last week. Now they're laughing at the Lord's promised judgment that's about to come. It's likely that they also think that Lot himself is a joke. He has no credible witness to his family because he's compromised his faith while he was living in Sodom. He didn't lead his family in God's ways while he was there. And now he tries to evangelize them. But why would they take him seriously? Both the message and the messenger are now seen, they now seem ridiculous to them. Verse 15 says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and the two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And so the angels, they urge Lot to flee the city with the rest of his family so they, they're not destroyed by what's to come. But amazingly here, Lot lingers he hesitates. He waits. He had just urged his sons-in-law to leave, to flee, but he struggles to do it himself. We see that Lot has been in Sodom for so long that Sodom is now inside of Lot. He struggles to imagine a different kind of life, especially one in the mountains, you know, living like a, a hillbilly. And now this is the second time that the angels actually grab Lot. And now they also grab his wife and his daughters by the hand and they drag them out of the city. They tell him, run as fast as you can, run for the hills, because the destruction is going to spread beyond Sodom. Don't stop. Don't look back. It's going to be a devastation, and everything's going to be swept away. Here we see the mercy of God to Lot. He overrides Lot's will to continue in Sodom and to be destroyed. Rather, he makes a way of escape, and he ensures that Lot takes it. And this is the same thing that God does for you and I. We're all bent on going our own way, which leads us to destruction. But God has mercy on us, and he intervenes in our lives, and he changes us, and he helps us to see his way of salvation in Christ so that we can run to Jesus to be saved through faith. Verse 18 says, And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. This is amazing to me. Lot knows that he's only alive because of the angels. The whole area is about to be destroyed. And now he argues about the escape route. You know, first he hesitates to leave the city. Now he's afraid that he's not going to have enough time to actually get away. So he wants to hang out, and he wants to, he wants to keep a little bit of Sodom. And he wants to keep that in this little city called Zoar. And so he compromises once again. And amazingly, the angels, the, he agrees, and he lets Lot go there. And we see that for the sake of one righteous person, Lot himself, they don't destroy that little city. 
Perhaps this is where the Jews get their reputation as shrewd negotiators. If you can bargain with God and angels, you've got to be pretty good, right? I mean, so, verse 23. The sun has risen on the earth. Uh, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Uh, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, sunrise is a picture of mercy usually. Uh, Scripture tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. But the sun rises on Sodom and Gomorrah's last day here. They never imagined that this would have been their last day. They're going about their business. They're having breakfast. They're getting ready for work and ready to buy and sell. You know, some think that this was an earthquake that led to all these sulfurous explosions. But Jesus said that sulfur and fire came from heaven down, not from the ground up. There's no doubt that this was the work of God to make an example for all time of his judgment and holiness. There's nothing partial about God's judgment here. It's total and it's complete. And this idea of raining fire reminds us of the totality of the flood judgment back in Noah's day. He destroys the vegetation too, the lush land that led to their overabundance and their arrogance and their pride. And Lot's Lot's wife we see here, who was probably a native Sodomite, she certainly was one in spirit. Sodom is where she wanted to stay. And in disobedience to the angels, uh, to their command, she looks back. She lingers behind. And she's overwhelmed by the spreading devastation. She most likely disappears in this blanket of salt, her body still being recognizable, the form of it. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. At the end of it all, the story turns back to Abraham, where it all started. No doubt Abraham is anxious about the fate of Lot in the midst of God's judgment. And so he goes back to the place where he had met with the Lord and where they had looked together down at Sodom and Gomorrah earlier. And now he sees these columns of smoke rising up where these bustling cities used to be. He sees the result of God's judgment, but he doesn't see Lot's salvation. God had answered his prayers, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't know it. He has to trust in God's justice and have faith that God is actually good. And this is the way it often is for us as well. Does God need to tell you every time that he answers your prayer? Does he need to send an angel to actually confirm it? Or will you trust that God is good and that he's faithful and that he's just? And as Abraham is here remembering Lot, verse 29 tells us that God remembered Abraham. And that is ultimately why God had saved Lot. He deserved destruction too. But righteous Abraham interceded for Lot based on faith in God. And in a similar way, righteous Jesus, he intercedes and he pleads our case before God. God remembered Abraham and saved Lot. And Jesus is remembered by God and we are saved. There are so many lessons here in this story for us, but I just want to touch on a couple things. First, we have to go back and we have to remember what was Abraham's calling because this is absolutely critical. Back in Genesis 18, verses 17 through 19, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham surely will become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By what? By doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised. You see, God's calling and his promise uh, to Abraham was to propagate righteousness and justice. And so he could bless every nation through him. And that's why God gave Abraham a preview of this destruction that was to come. Because they were the exact opposite of what God intended. And God wanted Abraham to understand the, 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 the depth of his calling, how serious he was about this. You see, when Job was making his case before God, Job actually said in Job twenty nine fourteen through 17, Job said, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous, and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? There were many. There were many. And yes, it manifested itself in homosexuality and and attempted rape. But it goes much deeper than that. And we see that in Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. He says they were arrogant, they were overfed, they had luxurious comfort, and they were unconcerned, and they didn't care for the poor and the needy. Sodom and Gomorrah was abundant. And they were prosperous, and they had become lazy, and they had become hard, and they had become numb, and they became addicted to looking for the next big thrill in physical pleasure. This screams America, doesn't it? I mean, we're, we're overfed. I mean, we think about, you know, the juvenile diabetes. We think about obesity in our country. We're arrogant. We see ourselves as better than those in other parts of the world. We have prosperous ease and luxurious comfort. This is American. It makes us unresponsive to the cry of the poor and the needy. I can tell you I have been so convicted by this as I've studied this passage. And I believe this is one of the reasons why God allows us to go through various trials and hardships. Because if he didn't, most of us wouldn't seek him as earnestly as we should. We'd be even more comfortable and lazy and self-centered, potentially leading to all kinds of evil. Randy Alcorn uh, of Eternal Perspectives Ministries, he writes this. He says, if you have enough food, decent clothes, if you live in a home that shields you from the weather and you own some kind of reliable transportation, you are in the top 15% of the world's most wealthy people. Add some savings, a hobby like hunting or fishing that requires equipment, two cars in any condition, a variety of clothing, and your own house, and you have reached the top 5% in the world in terms of wealth. You may not feel wealthy, but that's only because you're comparing yourself to someone else who has more than you do. To put this in perspective, more than 1.1 billion people in the world live on less than the U.S. equivalent of the equivalent of one U.S. dollar per day. What will you spend on lunch today? Statistics show that the more prosperous the Western church becomes, the less we give percentage-wise. You see, God cares about mercy and justice and for the poor and for the needy. And God's people must do the same. This is a part of what it means to be righteous and to bless the world around us. How do we give? How do we get involved? How do we find ways and opportunities to meet the the needs of people in the name of Jesus Christ? You know, in RGC, we decided to adopt a foster family and to meet their needs in Jesus' name. 
We were actually we had a group of people doing work there just yesterday. But there are many opportunities all around us if we would only care to look for them. You know, when the prophets, when they talk about this story, when they talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's always in the context of God's people being worse than they were. Always. In Ezekiel 16, 48, it talks about how Jerusalem's sin was much worse than Sodom. And that's because they had a much clearer revelation. What about us? We have the clearest revelation of all in Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation. We in the church, we can't dismiss Sodom and Gomorrah as, a, as an issue for those just dealing with homosexuality or trying to seek a way of escape so that we can get away from its message. It's easy to point to others and say, you know, we can take ourselves off the hook here when we read about this judgment. But the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, they point directly back to us, and we must repent. Ruth Graham, the the wife of uh, Billy Graham, said that if God doesn't judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, how do these manifestations of unrighteousness, how does this self-worship evolve from neglecting the poor and the needy to setting us on this mission of self-gratification and pleasure-seeking? You see, sensuality in our bodies, they become, sens- they become the central aspect of our lives as sexuality and perversion and violence become the only way that a numb soul can feel anything. It starts subtly with social and moral compromise, and then it can end in perverted, violent addiction, blinded by our own perversion and still trying to find the door to gratify its lust. It's the law of diminishing return as people become increasingly desensitized to sinful thrills that require more and more frequent and depraved acts to just feel alive. This downward spiral, it affects all of us to various degrees. And anyone who has dealt with any type of addiction knows what I'm talking about. The sodomites, they choose then to continue in this evil, and finally God gives them over to their lust, which brings the just judgment of God and the wrath and the destruction that we see here. You see, it's part of our sinful nature that arrogantly dishonors God. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 1 in verses 21 through 32. And we continue to see it today because human nature has not changed. So what does this say to us? You know, it's easy, again, to condemn, condemn others when we read it, but we must remember that sexual immorality, that violence, injustice, they were the ways of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But whether in great or in small ways, they are not the ways of the kingdom of God. And we are all called to forsake the ways of Sodom and Gomorrah, both great and small. And we read in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We are called to holiness. We are called to purity. And there is hope for all of us, regardless of what sin or what inclinations that we struggle with. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, us. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Amen? Such were some of us. What else do we learn about God in this story? We see here in this story that God is a personal and he's a passionate 
being. He's passionate for his glory and for his holiness. And we're created in his image and in his glory to reflect his nature. God is perfect and he never changes. And he still hates sin with a passion because it destroys those whom he loves. God will judge sin. And there is a future wrath coming. There is. You see that God, Sodom and Gomorrah is displayed here as a picture, as an example of God's wrath against sin and ungodliness. You see it throughout the scriptures in Deuteronomy and Zephaniah. 2 Peter 2.6 says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and, and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Ultimately, Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of hell. It's a picture of hell for those who don't believe in Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 15, that it will be worse for those who reject the gospel after hearing it than for those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. In the world, the world doesn't want to hear this. They, want, they don't want to know that there's a day of reckoning coming when God will judge the hearts of men. We don't want to be reminded that uh, you know, everything's going to be destroyed, that nothing's going to last. We get so caught up in this life and in living for ourselves. But these things are going to pass away. And Scripture tells us that God is patient, but His wrath, is, it still exists. And there is a future wrath to come. You see, if our sin were minor, then we would need a minor salvation, a minor Savior. If wrath was small, then we would need a small salvation. If our judgment was light, then we would need uh, very little righteousness at all. And if God changes constantly, then Genesis 19, it has nothing really for us. But if God never changes, then Genesis 19 speaks to us today. We need a great salvation. We need a great Savior. We need a great righteousness because of the holiness of God. We are all guilty before God. And we have a much clearer revelation than they had because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to mankind. And so we must be careful not to think that Sodom and Gomorrah is not relevant to every single person in this room today. We're reminded of the utter sinfulness of the entire human race, the judgment to come, and the fate of this world. But we are also reminded of the great mercy that God shows to his people, even in the midst of his judgment against sin. Jesus drank the wrath of God on the cross for our sins. And we won't appreciate that if we don't appreciate the depth of our sin and the holiness of God. Outside of Christ, you must bear the wrath of your sin. But Jesus drank that wrath against sin for you and for me so that we won't have to experience God's wrath, that fire and brimstone. The passion of Christ, the love and the courage of Christ to drink that cup of wrath for me so that I could be reconciled back to God. It's gone forever, completely. It's the passion of Christ that we would be saved and not swallowed up by the wrath of God. Paul wrote in Romans 5, verses 6 through 9, he said, While we were still powerless and ungodly, Christ died for us so that we might be justified by his blood and saved from the wrath of God. You see, Genesis 19, it's a timeless demonstration of God's wrath. And Sodom and Gomorrah points back to you and to me and the cross is a timeless demonstration of both God's wrath and his love for, and love for us in one place. God is passionate 
for his people. Jesus is the ultimate example of his passion to save those that he loves and deliver them from the bondage of sin and ungodliness. We have to remember there is a future wrath coming, and Jesus is the only salvation. We must be reconciled back to God by the blood of Christ. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Flee to him today and don't look back. Band's going to come back up. And as we do, uh, as they do, we're going to come to communion. And as we talk about Jesus drinking that wrath for us, we remember his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. And as we take that cracker and we break it and we dip it in the grape juice, we remember just how much, just the, the price that he paid for us. We're going to worship God today as we, as we sing. We're going to worship God today uh, through prayer. If you've realized today that you, know, you need to flee to Jesus and you've never done that, you've never trusted him for your salvation, today is the day to do that. And there will be people in the back to pray for you. We're going to worship God through our giving. We have offering boxes on the side walls and in the back and through fellowship. There's food in the back, and we encourage you to hang out and talk to one another. And so, as we come to communion today, let's remember the wrath of God that Jesus bore for us, and let's give him thanks for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your words. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself, your holiness, and your truth. We thank you that you've shown us also your great mercy, Lord, by intervening in our lives, by drawing us to you, and by saving us. Father, for, for those here who, who may not uh, trust you and who don't count on your salvation for their sins, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to see you this morning. Father, for those of us that uh, have become entangled in this world or in sin and uh, we're struggling to get out of it, Lord, I pray that we would flee to you today. I pray, Father, that you would just draw us back to you, that you give us the courage to talk to somebody about it, and to go pray about it. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.